No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock, which give the people their right to vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So feel free to call in with any questions at 888-627-6008. We have an amazing guest tonight, uh, Representative Tom Davis. Uh, Marilia, how are you? I'm doing fine, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Are you enjoying the snow? Yeah, I'm worried. I've got to go out tomorrow's dot Martin Luther King Day, and we're doing things in 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 uh, Anacostia. And I'm an old guy, so I'm worried about you know getting out of my car and getting out there. <laughs> um, but we have an amazing guest tonight. Uh, we Representative, do indeed. Representative Tom Davis, uh, uh, Congressman Davis, are you with us? I'm certainly am. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you great. You sound great. And for those of you who don't know, who might not know, uh, Congressman Davis is a Republican from Virginia who was in Congress for 14 years, representing the 11th District of Virginia. Uh, he, he he created over 100 pieces of, of uh, legislation in his time in the House. He was chairman of the House uh, Oversight and Government Affairs Committee, uh, and uh, important to every Washingtonian, he was the chief architect of a thing called the D.C. Voting Rights Act, which would have given the District of Columbia a vote uh, in the House of Representatives for the first time ever. And so we welcome him to the show and, and uh, uh, want to know what's going on today. We know you work for Holland and Knight uh, now, uh, uh Congressman, so let me start by asking you, do you miss being up on the Hill? Not, I mean, do you miss high school? I mean, the answer is <laughs> yeah. no. I was, I'm grateful for the opportunity it, it, that it gave me. Uh, you talked about 100 pieces of legislation. Those, that was legislation signed into law. I sponsored a lot more, including yeah. you know, D.C. voter rights. Uh, but we had 100 pieces signed into law. I, you know, a pr- prolific legislator. Um, I also, your listeners ought to know, I left Congress undefeated and unindicted, something I'm very, very proud of. So it's uh, yeah, it's it, it, sad that you have to say that these days. But yeah, yes, yeah. too sad. Well, you got to on the D.C. Council even more so. I mean, with the yeah. history, but you got it. You know, politically, it's everywhere. But look, um, I, I've been the rector at George Mason University the last six years. I just stepped down from that. I was term limited. 
Um, and I am a president of the Federal City Council, which is, a, a, as you know, a very large business group in the city. Yes. Um, so, yes. And I've been uh, part of a couple successful startups out here in Northern Virginia and uh, part of a couple more going well. So life's been pretty good, uh, and I stay active in politics. Uh, but well, now and, I can but, pick, and, pick and choose who I like. Well, and D.C. never had a better friend, actually, uh, uh, you know, we have we have a few neighbors that are good friends, and and uh, uh, you and uh, Jerry Connolly and uh, uh, several other people in Virginia. Even when Virginia was tough for us, you know, Mark Warner is a guy that I worked with at the DNC. We share we worked in the same division, but it took us a long time to get. Uh, Senator Warner to sign on to statehood. Uh, same thing with Steny, Steny Hoyer in Maryland. There's always been conflict uh, between D.C. and its neighbors, especially on the issue of, of, of equal rights. So we certainly appreciate um, um, yeah. your, you well, know, Mike, the think, things you've done. Yeah. Let, me, let me differentiate, just because I think it's important listeners understand the difference between voting rights in Congress in the House, yeah. the Senate, and statehood. They are all different arguments. And if, if I could, let me just go through them and we yeah, can talk please. about them. And the, and the pluses and the minuses. Uh, my bill, which I did get through the House, um, in fact, 23 Republicans voted for it, would have given the, the uh, district a vote in the House of Representatives, a, a vote. Now they have a representative. Uh, she's very, been very able and a strong advocate, but she only gets yeah. to vote in committee and in the Democratic conference. She doesn't vote mm-hmm. on the floor. This would have given the city a vote. Uh, our research showed this could be done, uh, you know, by the Congress. You didn't need a constitutional amendment to do this. That under the district clause, the Constitution. In fact, Ken Starr uh, testified before this before our committee. We picked up 23 Republican votes, including, you know, just to tell you, uh, Daryl Issa, Mike Pence, uh, uh, Ryan, Paul Ryan. So I, I think thinking Republicans went beyond the politics of this and recognized that. Maybe a congressional vote in the capital of the free world, uh, in the cradle of democracy, uh, w- was significant uh, and looked beyond the, the partisan ramifications of that. Uh, we're able to vote for that. Now, the Senate's more complicated because, as you know, uh, senators represent states, whereas representatives represent people. Um, and with the with D.C. not being a state, we could not make that same argument and move it, the bill through Congress. That would have taken a constitutional uh, amendment. There are two ways to do that. One is you could have the district vote with another state and include those votes in the vote of Maryland or Virginia. In the first 12 years mm-hmm. of the republic, the people that now live where the district is did vote for Congress. Uh, on the uh, Virginia side, which was, as you know, uh, retroceded in 1846, they voted for it with Virginia. And on the Maryland side, they voted with with uh, Maryland. Now, senators in those days were elected by legislatures. It was not a popular vote, so you don't mm-hmm. have really the, quite the same argument you have for a representative. But think of it this. They, the House at one point uh, it voted to move the government um, to Philadelphia. Uh, and it was a long compromise having to do with the uh, Revolutionary War debt and everything else that they decided to move it to uh, Washington. And they never got around to addressing the voting issue there because in 1801, when it moved, the the, uh, presidential election went to the House of Representatives, and they they just never got it done. I always said, look, if it had gone to New York, you don't think New York would have been without congressional representation. 
or, or to Philadelphia that they would have been without it, but because it was a new jurisdiction created right there, they just they just never got around to addressing this. Uh, and it was, you know, it, it wasn't really an issue, I think, uh, for generations and in the 60s when the city got the vote to, uh, for president. Um, you know, it started to become a civil rights issue. Uh, we had newly enfranchised uh, voters that had been excluded for generations and the like. Uh, and so the, that's where statehood really comes in. Now, the, the, the argument against statehood, of course, is a strong one in, in, in the sense that there should be a federal enclave at some point that the federal government controls and is not at the mercy of any state. And that goes back to an episode in 1783 when you had some uh, pensioners from the Revolutionary War march, marched on the Continental Congress uh, or the Congress under the Articles of Confederation. Uh, and uh, the local militia were sympathetic and wouldn't guard it, and, and they chased the, the Congress up to uh, Trenton. And at that point, uh, James Madison and others said, we need our own federal district, and that, that's the basis for this. But as you know, under statehood, they shrink the federal district and they make the rest of state, and the problem now is it's gotten really down into partisan politics. Uh, the city is a, is the most democratic unit in the country, if it were to be a state. I think the maximum a Republican ever gotten for president since they started voting uh, it was Richard Nixon in 1968 when he was getting 60% of the vote nationally, and he got 21% in D.C. And in these hard partisan times, uh, members can't look through their partisan lens uh, to just hand over two senators in a closely in a divided Senate. Uh, I think it all gets caught up. I mean, I, if that just lays a predicate for, for 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 the issue and the different lenses that Republicans and Democrats have view it. Uh, absolutely. But, um, you know, I once heard you, uh, Congressman, in a lecture that you gave, uh, I can't remember where you were, but you said there's only two things you can do to a politician. And I got to tell you, I've repeated this many, many times. You said you can either hurt them or help them. So how do we get to Republicans? Any idea how we get to Republicans and we either hurt them or or help them? Yeah, I mean, the problem with uh, the problem on the statehood issue is uh, I, I think Republicans are just going to say, but you're asking us to uh, get two more Democratic senators. I mean, yeah. it, with, if the city were a little more balanced in its politics, uh, th- I don't think you'd have that same same issue. You'd, you'd have other issues, but I think they could be overcome. Remember, when Alaska and Hawaii were admitted to the union, the last two states to be admitted, um, one was a more Republican state and one was a more Democratic state, and they brought them kind of in tandem, a, a year apart. Uh, that's been in the, in the old days. They had slave states brought in with free states. They, they right. try to keep that balance and not upset it. Uh, my favorite is Colorado, which the Republicans uh, snuck into the union in 1876 in their three electoral votes. Uh, they, they were admitted in August uh, of 1876. They didn't have time for an election, but the legislature was controlled by Republicans, so they sent three electoral votes there for uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, who ended up winning by one vote. <laughs> But there's always been politics in, in admission of states. And the, the city, you know, I don't think they can escape that. Uh, it would be if, if you had any elected Republicans in the city, it would be a little better. Uh, of course, the Republicans had one, Carol Schwartz, but uh, as Republicans, we eat our own. Mm-hmm. And they defeated her in a primary. And, and uh, since that time, 
there hasn't been any Republicans on council, even though two seats on the council are reserved for uh, members who are, are not part of the majority party. The, the irony in this, Michael, I always is that Michael, uh, a different Michael Brown, uh, was uh, uh, on the city council uh, running as an independent, and he would appear on CNN, and underneath him it would say Democratic political consultant. But they just ran as independents. Everybody knew what they were. And so you don't get that diversity of opinion within the council or anybody that can go back as an ambassador to Republicans to make these arguments. And it's just been very difficult. Yeah, um, it certainly has. Marilia, I'm sorry. I'm, I seem to be uh, uh, taking up all the time here. Do you have a question? For the Please. Yes, yeah, I do. Ahead. And it's not directly... Um, related to... Oh, it doesn't have to be. Go ahead. Statehood, but hello, Tom, and it's lovely to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, I would like to ask you about um, the contract with America. And basically, you were elected to the House in 94 when Gingrich introduced that contract with America. It was introduced before the 94 election, for better or for worse. But it was a cohesive, purposeful, and, and sort of communal um, bit of, of future intentions for, for, or intentions for future legislation. Um, a lot of it was about reform, and Americans wanted to see that in government, I imagine, although very divisively, they would want to see that now. Um, but it was, as you know, basically written by the conservative Heritage Foundation and promulgated before the midterm and basically taken from Reagan's State of the Union in 1985. Um, But there was strength in numbers and Gingrich, you know, got it through. It helped them win in in 94. Granted, it was the midterm, um, which typically leads to a House and or Senate changing parties. But still, the House gained 54 seats and the Senate nine seats. so my question is, why do you think the Democrats are unable to or don't ever come up with a similar approach um, with at least the Democratic Party to appeal to the Democratic Party to 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 sort of get cohesiveness and everybody behind uh, the same um, ball, if not beyond? Why do you think that is? Why do you think the Republicans are always well, able let, let, to let me, do that? Yeah, let me make a couple of comments. Uh, Will Rogers once said, I'm not a member of an organized party, I'm a Democrat. <laughs> uh, and, and the Democrat so coalition is, is very dissonant, and we could spend yeah. a whole uh, show talking about uh, there are parts of the coalition that are identity politics, the parts that are progressive, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and, and mm-hmm. pick that apart. I always said as a Republican candidate, you, could, you, you need to pick their coalition apart. Um, because it is it is fairly dissonant, and, and, and so is the Republican to some extent. What the Republicans did in 1994 is they had been out of power in the House for 40 years, 40 years. Right. And mm-hmm. Gingrich wanted to show, don't be afraid. And what they did is, yeah, a lot of these ideas came from heritage, but they all polled very well. There wasn't any issue on abortion, uh, for example. They didn't get into right. real controversial. These were issues that polled 60%, 70%, and they put this out there, and had uh, people sign. Now, we had a couple Republicans wouldn't sign it because they didn't like an immigration provision or a tax. But by and large, most of us signed it. I remember I was chairman of the county board in Fairfax. Mm-hmm. And I looked at my campaign manager. I said, should I sign it? And he said, sign it. Members didn't even know what they signed. But but it was it was marketed well. Uh, we, I can have mm-hmm. a lengthy discussion about its relevancy to my campaign. 
But remember, Republicans had been out of power for 40 years, and they were trying to show Americans, you know, give us the keys uh, to the kingdom. Uh, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to scare you. The diffi- and it was, a, it was a midterm election. Now, look, midterm exactly. elections, I, I, I was campaign chairman for the Republicans in 2000 and 2002, a presidential year and a midterm. And I can tell you the dynamics, if you will, the atmospherics of those elections are very, very different uh, between a midterm and presidential. Absolutely. Presidential races are generally uh, choices, uh, you know, a direction of the country. It's do you choose A or do you choose B? They're choice elections. And mm-hmm. each party puts out its competing visions, and voters get that choice. Midterm elections, though, if you look at the history over the last 150 years, have generally been referendums on the, on the incumbent. And that's why only three exactly. times in those 150 years has the president's party picked up seats. Um, I was campaign chairman for one of those three. And Martin Frost, who's a Democrat from Texas, the co-author of the book, I wrote, was uh, for, for one of the other sites. And we can tell you why the 1998 and, and – uh, 2002 were different. But if you're a Republican right now, you want to make this election about Joe Biden and his performance. You don't want to bring it back to Donald Trump, right? You want to, because Biden's numbers right, right now are in the tank. Uh, whatever you think about his policies, and you can argue for or against them, but they're having bad results on the ground. COVID is, is, is still not under control. You've got rapid inflation, the worst that we've had in 40 years. Uh, you've got a border that's leaking, foreign policy, uh, you know, it was an embarrassment with Afghanistan, and, and mm-hmm. Biden's numbers are sunk. And Democrats, if you get a choice, do I want to give Biden a blank check or do I want to put a check on Biden, Republicans win that. And we saw in the Virginia governor's race, Virginia is still a pretty blue state, uh, has a blue tinge to it, but independence broke by over 20 points for the Republicans. They mm-hmm. just wanted to send Biden and the Democrats a message. And so under those circumstances, which are different from 1994, if you're Republicans, you don't want to have a contract with America at this point. And if you're a Democrat, you're probably going to want to, uh, in any kind of a swing district, you probably want to run your own race. You probably don't want to get caught up on the elect Joe Biden or not. Well, you know what? Let me ask you a question in that regard, uh, Congressman. Uh, Let's, as a Democrat, I hope that Virginia is not a bellwether uh, for, for 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 the Democrats, but um, uh, the governor's race. But uh, you've got Representative Jim Jordan and Lindsey Graham making jokes about Biden uh, being like Jimmy Carter, uh, a guy that I worked for, and you know Carter, right? I think history has recorded Carter as the president. That, that, that we chose because of what happened in Watergate, what happened with Nixon. I think that's right. we're, looking, we're looking for a nice, honest mm-hmm. guy, whether he was a good president or not. Uh, and don't we have this, and he was a one-term president. And don't we have the same situation with Joe Biden in the sense that they, the country wanted somebody to bring us back to normalcy? And with the Republican Party marching in lockstep, with Donald Trump, don't they really hurt their chances in 2024? If Trump is your candidate, don't you think you'll lose? So I would say this. Um, first of all, the uh, your analogy to Carter is right in the sense that people voted for Carter because they just wanted to go a different direction. They wanted to kind of right. take a shower after, after Watergate. And Jimmy right. Carter was a fresh face. Now, unlike Biden, who was the consummate insider, 
uh, Carter was the consummate outsider. Um, mm-hmm. But to the extent that they were, it was kind of a return to normalcy, that they were elected because uh, people did not like the way things were going, I think that is, uh, uh, that, that's completely accurate. My own read is that, is that people voted uh, for Joe Biden because uh, a significant part of the electorate um, who is open, was open to both sides, just didn't want Donald Trump in their living room for four more years. And they saw Joe Biden as a stabilizing influence. As, I've, as one Democratic mm-hmm. member, uh, Manberger from Virginia, said, she said, we elected Joe Biden to be normal, not to be the next FDR. And as often happens when people win elections is they misread their mandate. I remember telling John Boehner when the Republicans took back the House in 2010, John, they, they rejected us in 2006 and 2008. They're not in love with this. They're just trying to send a message. He's, move, he's moving too fast. And I think uh, the, those the, we're seeing with Biden, again, overreading the mandate, getting tremendous pressure from the Democratic base. And as you look at both parties' caucuses, uh, these are members from single-party districts who only worry about their primary. And that has moved the Republican caucus right and the Democratic caucus left. And then if you can add Trump and his personal following on top of that to the Republican side, because not everything he does I would regard as conservative. Uh, that adds, I think, uh, you know, an added equation uh, for the Republicans to how do you handle this going into a midterm. Well, you, you know, I would say uh, you've got uh, some really good candidates out there. Uh, Congressman, you've got, in my opinion, as a Democrat, uh, you've got John Kasich, Mitt Romney, Larry Hogan. There's a lot of kind of moderate Republicans, I think, that that could, uh, um, you know, that scare me as a Democrat and could make Joe Biden a one-term president. But uh, if the, uh, how do you get those, is there any way to get those people past the primary? We had Michael Steele on the show and Michael Steele told us that Larry, Hag- uh, Larry Hogan wouldn't run for the nomination because he couldn't get past the primary. Uh, is I that true? Pro- I, yeah, I think that's probably, it's very difficult. I mean, I, I think we, you could see this coming in 2008 with McCain. The party base didn't, wasn't happy with McCain, but they saw him as the most electable, so they went with him. McCain, I think, wanted to go with maybe a Joe Lieberman for a vice president uh, or maybe uh, uh, Tom Ridge, but didn't think they could get them through the convention, and they end up with, uh, with Sarah Palin. And in 2012, Romney is a nominee. He, he wasn't the heart of the party, uh, but he was, the, he was the person they thought they could win, and then they both lost. Uh, by the way, I always say Democrats and their allies skewered these people. They skewered McCain, and they skewered uh, Romney with some of the same vitriol they went after Trump uh, because this is what happens in campaigns. They, you know, it's, a, it's always an exaggeration. Um, and so Republicans just went back with uh, Trump, and Trump, we, we had seen before the country, the uh, Republican base migrating from the country club to the country. It was becoming a more rural party. Part of this were environmental issues. Part of this were cultural issues, you know, guns, abortion, those kind of traditional issues. Um, and uh, Trump saw this, and then when he came out against uh, free trade, uh, he, he added a lot of blue-collar Democrats that had been voting, labor folks that had been voting Democrat on kind of economic issues. He brought them back into the Republican, he brought them into the Republican Party. And this was a straight-out culture war. 
Now, it costs Republicans in your high-income, uh, high-education areas, but they cleaned up in rural areas. And my, my favorite county when I look at this is um, uh, Elliott County, Kentucky, had never voted for a president uh, of the Republican Party in history, and they gave Trump uh, 70%. Uh, like Robeson County, North Carolina, huge swing there. Um, you, you look up to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, in the area. There's swings among traditional Democrats who just moved over because Donald Trump recognized something that John Casey, who was my candidate, uh, and other candidates, uh, Jeb Bush and others, didn't recognize, and that is there was a group of uh, white Americans out there who felt they had been ridiculed and laughed at by the establishment for years. Nobody was paying attention to them. They, and uh, Donald Trump had done reality TV for a decade. He talked to these people. He understood them in a way that, that, that many of the rest of us didn't. And it was a very emotional connection to him, and it, it just shocked uh, the Republican world. Uh, I was up in New Hampshire with John Kasich and was ringing doors, and it you know, surprised me. But everybody looks at life through different lenses. And as you talk to these folks, uh, we could see this was going to be a serious problem um, for uh, Republicans, particularly more moderate uh, members from suburban areas. That, that, that uh, and, and the feeling was Trump didn't have a chance to win. That was our conventional wisdom. Uh, little did we know uh, that he ended up uh, winning the winning the presidential race, and he could win it again in 2024, uh, unless Biden or the Democrats can pull themselves back. Because right now they're just having terrible results on the ground. You know, with the issues I talked about before. Well, you know that, that I, I feel, uh, Congressman, that that's always been the Achilles' heel of the Democratic Party is that we talk down to the world. You know, uh, you just don't. You don't want a gun. You're just smart enough not to real. You're not smart enough to realize that. So we're going to explain it to you. Uh, rather than sitting down and talking to people. And, I, and I've seen that in the 40 years that I've been with the Democratic Party. So that is our... That is, that yeah, is right. our... So that's a great our, point. Our, Let me give you really, another point. Let yeah, me give you go ahead. Piece. Uh, we, we all... We see climate change. Those of us that study things, we recognize that climate's changing and the effect of greenhouse gases. But when you start the conversation, we're going to shut down oil and gas, or we're going to shut down coal, you, you, you people start digging in. We know at the end of the day we need to come together on this, that we're going to need to do more carbon, carbon capture. We're going to have to do more research and develop in terms of how we do these things. We're going to have to move in this area. But when the first sentence out of your mouth is we're going to put a lot of coal miners out of work, hell, they're already out of work if you, if you look at the statistics. You know, we're going to shut down oil and gas. People, constituencies dig in. And for the most part, if you look at that business, uh, you know, that's a blue-collar business. These are workers. You, you want to uh, explain the Hispanic movement in South Texas? A lot of it goes just to energy policies of the Democratic Party. Democrats in Texas were making huge inroads in the major counties, Bayer County, Dallas County, Harris County, uh, certainly Austin, uh, running up huge margin in metro areas, some of which used to be Republican bastions. But South Texas was moving the other way, part of it on cultural, but part of it on environmental issues. And these are Hispanics that Democrats thought were a natural part of their constituency. Well, they were in an identity politics sense, but when you start moving uh, the economics in there, it just it didn't seem to fit there. So, look, it's complicated as we walk through, but I've always been one, you know, coming out of local government in Fairfax, where you, you sit around the table and you figure out what's doable. 
Uh, that's how I was able to pass a lot of laws. And uh, nowadays, that kind of behavior gets punished in primaries. You sit down with the other side, you get punished in primaries. The more outrageous you are, the more likely you are to raise money online, and the more likely uh, you are to get on cable news, right and left. This, this, I don't think anybody's got a monopoly. Both, both parties have these issues. You look at Democratic fundraising in the House after Pelosi, I think it's AOC's the second biggest fundraiser. Uh, on the Republican mm -hmm. side, after McCarthy, I think their largest fundraiser is Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is, you know, in Congress couldn't couldn't pass, uh, you know, couldn't get uh, any a bill or amendment through, uh, couldn't get it through the caucus. Um, but because outrageous behavior is rewarded in this day and age uh, on the right and the left, we're getting more and more of it. Um, and, and these single-party districts are a huge uh, part of this. For for 80% of the House, the only race that matters is the primary. If you're running in, in the district, Michael, you don't worry about Republican voters. I don't mean you don't care about them, but they play no role uh, you know, in your election. You've got to win the Democratic primary. And so you cater to those voters. And uh, they are not in, in the district. They're dom very dominant. But in most places in the country... They may be dominant, but uh, they're not the only voters out there. But members go back and say, I talk to my constituents. They're talking to their party base because the primary is what elects them. The general election in, in most of these districts is nothing more than a constitutional formality. Well, you know, uh, 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 excuse me, Marilia, I'll let you go in a second. But uh, defund the police, that was the one for me, uh, Congressman. As soon as they started... Because, you know, I do a lot of work in Anacostia and other places. People in those neighborhoods don't really want to defund the police. They want reform. But, but you know, exactly what you're saying. To come out and say, to use the terminology, defund the police, uh, to, to invoke the image that you're going to shut police departments down. Um, yeah, that, that's, I think, a classic example of what you're talking about. I'm sorry, Marolia. Go ahead. No, no worries, Mike. Um, Congressman, you mentioned John Kasich, and I would just like to say that I worked on the Kasich campaign. Um, he was great. my choice, hands down. I didn't even have to think. Um, Donald Trump was definitely not. Um, but I ran his Hawaii and Pacific um, campaign because I was living in Hawaii at the time. Um, and you mentioned that, and, and it's obviously true, that Trump read the populace. He read people um, in terms of, of voters' desires and needs and wants. Um, and he was in touch with people. But Kasich was too, in, in a very um, genuine and authentic way, in which Trump wasn't. Trump has, as I'm sure his niece would agree, sociopathic um, tendencies to, to read people just like and i hate to be hyperbolic about this just like hitler did and it's just how the brain works um but he um it, he did it in a way that was completely self-serving whereas john Kasich has genuine empathy and genuine concern for the welfare of the american citizen so what is the difference between Kasich and trump in that Kasich was well, not able to saying, appeal. I, yeah, uh, look, I think Kasich, and you look at his reelect in Ohio, which was 70%. I exactly. think John would have run even stronger than Trump. So I will just say that, and that's having you know run the campaign committee 
twice written book teaching this stuff. I, I think that uh, these blue-collar workers were coming to the Republican Party anyway. They've been moving in that direction. And, and, and Governor Kasich would have had a lot more appeal, I think, in your higher-income suburban areas, Orange County, California, Fairfax, Virginia, and done very well there. So I, so I think it would have been a different race. But uh, I think Kasich uh, would have run stronger. I felt that way. I still feel that way. I, I will say this. I think when we start throwing out terms like comparisons to Hitler, uh, racism, they're, they're thrown out so routinely now that mm-hmm. where they may actually apply, they just fall on deaf ears. It's just part of the political uh, uh, lexicon that, that people utilize. Donald Trump was a lot of things uh, that that, uh, that that gave me some concern. Uh, he was certainly unconventional. Uh, his uh, characterization of John McCain, uh, I thought, was off the rails. Uh, you know, firing the FBI director, uh, you know, uh, in a press release. Uh, you, you, a guy like Comey, you call him in and you say, this isn't working out. Uh, he even fired Rance, uh, Rance Priebus, had been RNC chairman, and he, he fires, I mean, you, you say, Rents, like, this isn't working. Can I find something else for you? Can I give you an ambassador? That's the way people that come up from where I come in politics handle those kinds, a little smoother. Trump was from, uh, you know, he was from the Queens. He was very rough around the edges. Uh, some people really like that. I will tell you this, my suburban neighbors out here who agreed with Trump on a lot of the economic issues in particular, uh, it, they just found it uh, re- revolting. And uh, it, it ended up costing him more than he picked up, and I think you, you can look at the returns. But I, I don't, I don't put him in the same uh, category as a Hitler <clears throat> or anything else. He was just very, very unconventional. He made a lot of people uncomfortable. And I always said out here, um, Michael, in the suburbs in Fairfax, where I'm from, uh, there were a lot of Yunkin signs out here this year. I, I worked up on the Yunkin campaign. I thought all along we were going to win it. You could kind of feel it. People, Yunkin signs all over. You put a Trump sign up in my neighborhood, it was a hate crime. So it goes back to what you were saying in terms of his perception among a lot of people. Uh, and, of course, the January 6th, and we can get into the whole thing of this. But, but I'm, always, I'm, I'm always more careful uh, try to see the good in people as we move forward and uh, just recognize Trump is a force majeure uh, in politics that is going to have to – Republicans are going to have to decide how they handle him in the midterm and in the coming general election, if uh, if he becomes dominant in the midterm election, this becomes a choice election between Trump and Biden. And I think Republicans still take the House, but I think it, it lowers the ceiling in terms of what they can get, as opposed to making this a, a referendum on Joe Biden and Democrats. Does, does that explain it, for, at least from my mm-hmm. perspective? Yeah, the I understand that. Saying. A lot of people agree with you on Trump. I'm not, not saying, I'm just... I don't put it in the same category, but I, I tend to be more analytical on this stuff. Uh, but I, I hear you. And let me just say, I don't mean to say he's like Hitler. I mean, we just have a, a few moments to express ourselves on the show. When I say Hitler, I, it sounds hyperbolic, but it's not. But if you look at the psychology of Trump, and I, my dad was a psychiatrist. I have studied the brain. I've dissected the human brain. I've written about the brain. When I say Hitler, it is a comparison of the sociopathic tendencies, and in his case, the sociopathic tendencies that allow him to appeal to people, just like Ted Bundy did. It's all in a psychological continuum, and I'm not saying he was Hitler, but he had the same diagnosis, if you will, in in terms of the sociopathy 
in terms of the pathological tendencies that he has to appeal to people. And I and and any psychologist would say, yes, that is true. But again, I'm not saying he was like Hitler. He, he you know, would not enact a Holocaust, but he um, I don't have time to explain it psychologically or neurobiologically, but but he does. He shares that. So, you know, I, I didn't mean to say he was just to explain no, it to you, I, look, look, that the yeah, argument still I, holds. And I don't I don't want to argue. I'm just telling you, I, sure. I, I didn't view it from those through the same lenses. Uh, it did. Well, I, I do think this is a person, though, who had a, uh, a connection with a wide body of Americans that most of mainstream politicians ignored. Right. Well, it you is know, not genuine like Kasich's was, is, is my point. Kasich has the same connection, if you will, would have had a better yeah, connection no. had he had better press and media no, coverage. It, but he has yeah, the no, same. His background. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. I, I well, and, and given that, given that. Congressman, since the rhetoric from uh, Donald Trump, for example, is not getting any less vitriolic, uh, again, what does that do to you guys in 2024? I mean, if he's your candidate, can he win? Do you think he can win? He couldn't win at the height of his 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 win today. You know, popularity. Yeah. Michael, I, I think he would win today if it were the two of them. Now, there's a long way to go. I mean, just a long, right. long way long to go. Way. And uh, and because I think right now he's been off Twitter for a year. I mean, people kind of forget. You know what I mean? You kind of yeah. fade in the background. Mm-hmm. And you look at President Obama's numbers are much better today than when he was in office. George W. Yeah. Bush's numbers. I mean, as time fades sometimes, the the, the, the uh, that pe- people forget some of the things that irritated, and they go on to the next uh, victim, in this case, uh, Biden. Um, so, yeah, he could win. He may not win. Uh, it, it may be this. I, I, I tend to believe that if you were to get a Biden or Harris on the Democratic versus a Trump, you'd, you'd have a, a third party uh, try to come in um, that could have some significance. But, but who knows? I mean, it's just a long way to go. I'm not convinced at this point um, – that Donald Trump gets nominated um, in three years. Um, he, he's got a series of midterm primaries that he has made endorsements. He will win some of them. Uh, he will lose some of them. And depending on how some of those races come out, you know, once the, the patina is gone, he doesn't look like he's the uh, kingmaker on everything, people will get a little more independent. But we just don't know how this shows up and, and how he plays it. And at the end of the day, I think he's in a. He certainly has a strong following within the party, but there are a lot of Republicans that would prefer to go a different direction. They're just not saying anything right now, and I think they're looking for some signs of weakness. Uh, in, in an ironic way, uh, uh, President Trump may be helped because he's not on Twitter, that he's not out there, uh, you know, building some of the ne- negatives that, that had tremendous positives for him in communicating his message. That have had a lot of negatives with people reminding you every day, saying things that people didn't agree with. Well, I've got to agree with you about the popularity thing. Uh, my popularity is is certainly much greater with my children now that they're all grown <laughs> than than when they were teenagers. I wasn't I wasn't your most popular candidate when I was when they were teenagers, but they, but they seem to like me more now. Let Let me just change the subject for a moment because. Uh, this is so important to us here in D.C. Uh, the road to statehood for us is pretty clear in the Senate. 
uh, the first thing we need to do is get rid of the filibuster because we're never going to get uh, 60 people on our bill. But so so what do you think, uh, Congressman, the filibuster, is it a tool or is it just, uh, you know, a vestige of Jim Crow? Well, as you know, it didn't start with Jim Crow. The filibuster existed long before that. Uh, In fact, the first usage uh, was basically stopping a censor resolution on Andrew Jackson. Um, it, it has been part of, you know, it's not part of the Constitution. It, 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 it grew right. up procedurally. It's, it, look, it's a very two-edged sword. If you listen to Sinema's comments, if you're in the moment and you're a Democrat right now, say, how could somebody say this? But let me give you the other side of this, Michael. Let, let's go back a few years when Republicans were frustrating a number of Obama nominees. Democrats controlled the Senate. But Republicans were holding up a number of his nominees because of the 60-vote threshold. And Harry Reid uh, utilized what he called the nuclear option at that point right. and said, look, we're just going to go with 50 votes. And I understand why he did it. We all understand why he did it. Um, and it made sense at the time for Democrats. But fast forward, Trump gets in, and all of a sudden you've got three Supreme Court nominees. Now, they changed the rule. They did it for everything but the Supreme Court. And the Republicans said, we well, did it for everything else. We're going to do it for the Supreme Court. I don't think they would have done that. The Supreme Court had the Democrats not taken the initial uh, action on nominations. So it may make sense today, but I will tell you down the road it's going to come back and bite you. Because when Republicans, if Trump takes it and you've got a Republican Senate and a Republican House, uh, your voting rights and everything else, what they're doing in Georgia, will be nationalized. Uh, and so, it, it look, it's a very two-edged sword, and I just... Uh, it, this is a different era now. Um, we have, both with voters and politicians, they don't act like this is a balance of power structure. You know, we were constructed as a balance of powers, checks and balances. And it was reason people would be able to come together. Now you have very unreasonable people co- not coming together and acting like it's a parliamentary system where, where uh, impeachments are becoming more like... Um, uh, no confidence votes. And this stuff is just routine, egged on by the party bases. We talked about the single-party districts, but, but there's another element to this, and that is people don't tune into the news to get information anymore. They tune in to get affirmation. They tune yeah. in to get their worldviews valid, and they walk around like they know what's going on. The other, everybody else is just stupid. And it, it doesn't help if you can't deal with the same set of facts. I like local government because... We all dealt from the same set of facts. There were just a handful of us in the room, and you didn't want anybody to go away too mad because you needed them on the next vote. (laughs) At the the national level, it's red jerseys versus blue jerseys every day. And sometimes you think, you know, do we care about the country? Uh, This infrastructure bill that Biden signed, this bill didn't come from Biden. It didn't come from Democratic leaders. It didn't come from – it was a group of members in the Senate, Christian Sinnaman being one, uh, who said, we need an infrastructure bill. And they went to Schumer and they said, look, we've got uh, uh, 13 Republicans. We've got enough to overcome it. We need to move this bill through. We've been trying to get an infrastructure bill through for over a decade. And 19 Republicans voted for it in the Senate. But by the time it got over to the House, it started getting used uh, – you know, as a political prop for Build Back Better, uh, you only got 13 Republicans in the House. I mean, it, it's just gotten so partisanized, and it's not the way the founders intended. It doesn't work very well, And but until the voters get sick of it, and as long as members only worry about their primary voters 
and independent voters just take the choices they're given instead of getting in early on these nomination fights and nominating people who can reason together. Uh, we're going to get more of it. Well, given that, Congressman, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Congressman, you, we wish you were in the House again and the Senate. Um, no, I, you're I, brilliant. I you, were you really friend. are. <laughs> What's that? Oh. <laughs> That's right. I'm trying to put you back in high school, right? <laughs> no, you really are. You're brilliant. And it's so it's it's amazing listening to you. But what do you think on, on all that, you know, as a footnote, what, what do you think could be done to change this? I mean, there's not one cure, of course, but. Well, on the filibuster, for example, uh, uh, you, you could have a talking filibuster. Right now, it's all notices, right? You just did right. notices. In the old days, they had to talk. You mm-hmm. sat there and you had to talk around the clock, and that wears a lot of people down. And you're in Washington 24-7. Uh, after a while, people say, you know, this isn't any good. Now, the, the reason they did away with that is because it held up everything else. You couldn't get anything else done during a filibuster. And now just by notice, you know, committees can meet, you can act on other bills. So, but if, if you're really concerned about the filibuster being abused, and I think we can both agree it's been abused by both sides, that this yep. is the way around it. At least yep. make them get up there and put their mouth where they're, uh, uh, you know, make them get up on the floor and, and spend some nights there. I was a page uh, from 1963 to 1967 when they had those filibusters. We had cots set up in the Senate. Uh, as, as pages, we would work in shift. We went to school at 6 in the morning, but we would sometimes stay all night and we'd work in shifts. The nice thing about that is you didn't have to go to school the next day. But they've gotten so far away from this where this is just all 60-vote threshold, and as a result of that, everything is filibustered, and nothing happens. So that, that's you, you could get around it a little bit and make it at least hurt everybody a little bit if you do that instead of just filing a notice. Um, but doing away with the 60-vote threshold, uh, if you do that, uh, it's going to come back to bite you at some point, just like it did uh, for, for liberals with the Supreme Court nominees and the courts that, that, uh, that, that uh, Trump was able to pack, and also the regulatory agencies where he put people in that never would have been nominated if you had uh, a 60-vote threshold. They would have been forced to sit down and negotiate them. So pick your poison. But I think what looks good today may not look good in in, in two years if Republicans were to take everything, or three years if Republicans were to take everything, you'd rue the day. And you've got to play the long game. What what do you think of our argument, Congressman, that it should be suspended uh, for voting rights, uh, especially the D.C. statehood bill, because no state has ever entered the union uh, with that uh, threshold. No state has ever had to meet 60 votes to get into the uh, uh, union. In fact, many states have only gotten in by one or two votes. Yeah, look, you can have the argument, but once you, you know, once you make an exception for one thing, you make an exception for other things. And the exceptions that you have today, which is the, the, on the, the, the Budget Act, uh, you've got it for uh, some appointments under the Congressional Review Act. Very, very, very few. Uh, those were done with 60 votes uh, when they changed those rules for those, uh, you know, legislatively. It's a good argument. I think what the district needs to do, you've got to play the long game on this. I would have taken the House vote. The Democrats in, this, in the Senate who had filibustered my House vote, 
passed it, and they couldn't get it through the House because there was a gun amendment on there. And everybody said, oh, right. well, we don't want to take it with a gun amendment. I just say, well, take it and get rid of the gun stuff later. You know, you've got to be practical. You'll never get – don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You could have had a vote in the House, and then you come back later, and you, 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 you get what you can. But trying to score that 99-yard pass when you can get a couple first downs, to me, is not, is not the way I'd play the game. Secondly is, you know, I think over time you can get Republicans to support it, but as long as it's a one-party city, it's going to just the, – the threshold gets very high and the pain level very high. And as you know, Republicans use this as an arguing point to their base while they're trying to stuff two Democratic senators down the base. By the way, they say the same thing for Puerto Rico – and Puerto Rico is not a Democratic bastion. Puerto Rico has a lot no. of Republicans. In fact, their delegate, the, mm-hmm. the their resident commissioner, is a Republican. Yeah, and also their their delegation is uh, two Republicans, two Democrats, and an Independent. So, so they're following they're following uh, uh, your advice of trying to trying to uh, you know uh, keep it um, right. I don't know. Keep moving is, forward that way. The difference for Puerto Rico is. They don't pay federal taxes. Right. D.C. does. They don't. It's just hard and with a straight face to say you point. can't have congressional representation. I right. mean, the, the the other thing that Gingrich uh, and Jack Kemp, we talked about, I said, you don't want to give them a vote? Don't make them pay taxes. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, my constituents in the 11th district would be happy to get rid of me and give up my vote if they didn't have to yeah. pay taxes. <laughs> yeah, but, and D.C. too. Taxation, you know, it's a strong argument. Oh, yeah. My house sits on the dividing line between D.C. And, and Maryland. So you take away my taxes, my property value goes way up. Uh, but uh, let me ask you, uh, this this really bothers me, is that there's all this talk about voting rights all over America. This is all we're talking about right now, and not one single word about D.C. Not one single word about 700,000 people that are disenfranchised. It's like, you know, you've already spelled out what the Republicans' problem with statehood for D.C. is. It's a partisan thing. But for Democrats, it seems like this is our dirty little secret or something, and we we don't want it to interfere with our push for voting rights, so we're just going to sweep it under the rug and not talk about it. What do you think about that? So, so look, you had 60 votes with Obama in the Senate. That was the yeah. time to go for it. They, they didn't could have done immigration. They could have done it, and they, they, they went and did some other things. And I'll just say they did just, it just wasn't the priority. But secondly, let me just say that I'll be a little controversial on this voter rights stuff. I think I understand it pretty well. This is, you know, in, in, in Georgia, you, it's a 15-day election day now. You have 15 yeah. days where you can vote in person. You can go to a drop box. There is no excuse absentee balloting. If you want to vote in Georgia, you can vote. It's about getting people out to vote who don't want to vote and convincing them, and in some cases harvesting ballots. And I think it's been grossly exaggerated by the Democrats in terms of, I mean, comparing it to Jim Crow is absurd when Georgia's laws, and I'd be happy to have this, are more liberal than, than uh, uh, Delaware or New York. New York just turned down uh, some of those efforts for no excuse absentee ballots. The voters turned it down 55-45. They're not all racist. They, they, they recognize what's going on. People don't like the harvesting of ballots and everything else going on this. I think the Democrats are, are talking in an echo chamber 
to each other when they talk about this kind of thing. And the average person is saying, how is this helping me? Because they recognize that most people who want to vote, it's just not a problem. And you take away a photo ID from the end, and they're saying, what are you doing? I would say the Republicans have a similar problem, and that they're yelling about an election that was stolen that wasn't stolen. If anybody had a right to complain about a stolen election, I'd look at Al Gore, who uh, yeah. goes yeah. to the Supreme Court in a five-to-four vote, which he was claimed sort of party mm-hmm. line. Um, and and, uh, and what did he do? He walked away from it. Trump was a very sore loser on something. And he, look, if there was cheating, fine, but you couldn't prove it in court, and we have to go along with what the court said, and it's right. absurd. So I think both sides on this thing are just way out of the mainstream with what they're looking at. Um, it, it is about harvesting ballots. There are a lot of people, uh, and Democrats believe this, and particularly of, of, a, of, of, of a lower income, lower educated voters who uh, don't tend to participate in large numbers, uh, that sending them absentee ballots, having being able to go out and harvest these ballots and it will help them politically. Um, in Virginia this time, uh, we have uh, some expanded uh, franchise laws. So they expanded the ballot in Virginia. They took away photo ID. Uh, They expanded in-person voting. They made absentee voting uh, 45 days. Uh, You could have 45 days for in-person absentee voting, and you had no excuse absentee voting. And here's what happened. Uh, Four years ago, we'd had record turnouts for governor. Northam blew through it and brought a Democratic legislature in. And McAuliffe got 200,000 more Democratic votes than Northam. And they thought, aha, we're going to win. But guess what? Youngkin brought in 500,000 more Republicans. Republicans yearned to use that in these rural areas. And they went out there and they did the same thing. And they end up not just winning, but those votes that you harvest in that way and that you bring in that, they they do not split their tickets. They're party line votes, as you know. And uh, the Republicans end up winning uh, seven seats in the legislature, taking control of the state house, and sweeping all statewide elections. It's a very two-edged sword. But t- to comparing these laws to Jim Crow, for anybody, it's, it's you know, for Biden to do that is, is as outrageous as anything Trump did in terms of voting laws and stuff. They're just so far out of the mainstream of what's, what's real. I know these are real issues to some people. They should be. We need to keep it. But, but in terms of the way this is applied on the ground and in states like at this, at this point, the disparity that is talked about in the rhetoric is nowhere near the reality. That's my opinion. Well, you know, I'd love to argue the point with you, uh, Congressman, but we're out of time. And you've been a, just an <laughs> I'm amazing guest. I'm filibustering. Yes, I'm yes. being filibustered. And you've been an amazing <laughs> guest. And, you're, and you've always been a friend to the people of the District of Columbia, and I thank you for that. Uh, we, as Marilia has already said, we miss you in Congress. We could use more moderate Republicans like you. And we're going to leave you with a song tonight. We always leave with a song. And right. this is I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. In, in honor of you, uh, 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 Congressman Tom Davis, and uh, be nice to my friend Audrey there at, at Holiday Night. <laughs> I will do that. I'll go up He's and see her next person. time she's in the office. Yeah, right. and, and, and we hope that you'll come back uh, later. Well, thank you, both for, yeah, thank, thank you both for giving me the chance, Mike. Thank you, Congressman. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. And we'll thank see you, you next you. week. We'll see you next week, folks, when our guest will be the Reverend Jesse Jackson. Uh, so uh, thank you, Marilia. We'll, we'll, we'll see you Thank next you, week. Senator. Yeah.